Lord, how we long to not just hear about the Word of God, but Lord, we want ears that really do hear it. And who hear you hear the Spirit of God taking your word and speaking to us. And so, Father, we have been speaking to you. We've been telling you our praises. We've been offering you our prayers. We've been giving to you, Lord, as part of our worship. And now, Lord, it's it's a time where we can listen to what the word says to us. And so we pray, Lord, you give us ears to hear. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would apply your word to our hearts. We're all in different places. So, Father, you're doing what's best. And I pray that you take this stammering tongue and this person in weakness. I pray, Lord, that you would empower me and that I would not be in the way to hinder what you desire to teach us through your word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if any of you could say that you have an item in your home that you would consider a priceless treasure. Not so much just the monetary value of it, but the fact that you have something in your home that if it were to be broken or if it had been stolen, it would be irreplaceable. You can't find another one like it. Uh, While I was visiting my mother a couple of days ago, I noticed uh, an unusual vase that was sitting on a a shelf in her living room, and I inquired about that. It has a little piece of paper inside of it in which somebody, I don't know who, um, rendered what they think is the history of this particular vase, and it's rather historic. They say it dates back to around the early 1800s. And it's supposedly a family heirloom. I'd never seen it. It must have been tucked back in some closet somewhere in my grandparents' uh, things. Anyway, I wondered, as I thought about that vase, we talked about it briefly. I held it in my hands very carefully uh, when I looked at it. And I wondered to myself, you know, what would my mother, how would she respond if I were to ask her if I could borrow that vase? And on the way home, uh, we stopped and we did some, uh, you know, BB target shooting. And if I could just use the vase so that you know if you hit the target, it would make a nice sound, maybe a a breaking sound or something. And I thought, maybe she would let me borrow that. Well, of course, that's ridiculous for me to think such. But then I thought, well, why not? I'll use it for a useful purpose. You know, it is a container. So I thought, what happens if she would maybe let me borrow it and uh, when I change the oil in my car? and, And I could just collect the used oil in the container. Only problem is that oil is what? Slippery. And probably what would happen in using it that way, probably slip it, it would slip from my hands, probably break on the garage floor. Well, these things are both obviously ridiculous. They're outrageous thoughts to take something that is that valuable to our family and to devalue it and to misuse it in a way that would ultimately destroy it. Well, I'm trying to capture the kind of outrage that I think the Apostle Paul feels and expressed in this letter to the Galatian church, because he's he's viewing this whole issue going on with them, is that the gospel of grace is a priceless treasure. He is concerned and he faces this sad reality that in their minds, they've lost sight of the fact that the gospel is this irreplaceable treasure that, and, and, and it can be and often is devalued. It is often misused. Some people, and he notices and comments on them in this book, he tried, they've tried to improve the gospel, the gospel of grace. And they have tried to add requirements, add regulations. People have foolishly sought to attempt to earn their own salvation to God, to add to whatever Christ has done on the cross by doing something or giving up something. 
It's called legalism. It's deadly. It's destructive. It totally destroys the gospel. Other people go to another extreme, and they cheapen the gospel, and they make the suggestion that because we receive our salvation on the basis of grace, unmerited favor, that is, we did nothing to deserve it, not a thing at all, and therefore, because it's grace shown to us in, in, in our salvation, therefore, we're free to indulge our flesh. It's all of grace. And that leads people then to what they call the other extreme. One, one extreme is legalism. The other extreme is, lic- is licentiousness. It means to, to indulge the flesh, indulge your sinful nature. Both of these misuses of the gospel of grace are strongly condemned in the book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul was outraged that this priceless treasure of the gospel of grace had been modified by all these false teachers who were trying to earn their standing before God on the basis of their attempts to somehow be better people, to keep the law somehow. Other people who were perverters of the gospel insisted that the freedom that we gain in the gospel liberates us from any restraint when it comes to sin. Since we are forgiven on the basis of grace, they would argue that we have freedom to indulge our flesh. These are the kind of things that were were floating around in this church in Galatia. And so Paul responds with two important corrections. He says that salvation is on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone. That's the first correction. He talks about it's, it's by grace alone, by faith alone. You don't add to it. But secondly, he says that true saving faith is to lead to Christ-likeness. Also known as, end of chapter 5, verse 22, 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Not to be indulging in our flesh, but we're to be uh, showing forth the fruit of the Spirit. That is, not in sinful patterns of living, but in showing forth what Christ is like in His character. And so this gospel grace declares God's unmerited favor It is bestowed onto every sinner who admits their sin, who repents and turns from that embracing and and, and enjoyment of sin and places their faith and complete trust in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection from the dead. And then in embracing that gospel, we now come to a conclusion which Paul has defended this gospel. And now I want us to look at verses 24 and 25 of Galatians chapter 5, page 1388 in your pew Bible or wherever you're looking on your electronic gadget. And I hope you're looking at the word and not something else on your gadget. Okay, so let's all stay on the same page here. What does he say? Well, having just defined and explained what the fruit of the Spirit is about, it is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. In other words, the law does not in any way forbid us from doing and pursuing any of these things. Verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Here in this passage in Galatians, we're going to find two sides of the same coin. Paul, in a sense, is pointing out the two sides of the coin of the gospel of grace. On the one hand, he's going to say that the gospel points us to the cross 
a cross on which a life is to be lived of ongoing repentance. That there's a sense in which the flesh was crucified at some point. When we came to Christ, that's a point in our past. It has a huge impact on how we go forward from that. On the other side of the coin of the gospel grace, he is going to emphasize the fact that the spirit of adoption is the one who's going to guide us as we move forward in the Christian life toward godliness, toward Christ-likeness. And it's the two of these things together that help give us balance and move us toward victory over sin and toward a greater holiness of life, which God is calling us and all of his people to pursue. So let's look first of all then at our first point. The first side of the coin now we're considering is the, in verse, this is verse 24, is the gospel of grace points us to the cross and a life of repentance. A life of repentance. At the core of the gospel of grace, you cannot get around it, is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on a cross. I think of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. When it says, Christ died for sins, the righteous one dying for the unrighteous ones that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel. It's about crucifixion. It's Christ, the holy one, dying for the unholy ones. You get the idea of substitution. And when Christ died on the cross, his death served as a ransom. He was paying for something. He was a payment to free us from the sense in which we were held in bondage to our sin. We were, we were held as a, as a slave to continually pursue a life of doing our own thing and living for ourselves and being obsessed with our own happiness, our own joy, our own being our own gods. And Jesus' selfless sacrificial, sacrificial love provides us an incentive now to a holy life. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to show you this interesting way this plays out in 1 Peter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, it's 1441. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Notice the two aspects here of how the cross serves as, an, as a call to repentance and turning away from our former life we lived before we became a Christian. Verse 14, 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former, I use the word desires, former desires which were yours in your ignorance. That is before you were a Christian. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Why is that? Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Quoting from Leviticus. Knowing, and then skip down, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, verse 18, like silver and gold from your futile or empty way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood, the blood of Christ. See, Jesus bought us out of slavery at a very high cost. It wasn't cheap. He didn't just pay with his credit card and say, I'll just put it on my bill. No, he's paying with his life. He died to pay the huge debt that we owe to God, which we accrued over years and years of our sins, which have, again, we were unable to pay for those. We were unable to resolve or rectify or somehow deal with that problem in offending God and His holiness. 
And so Jesus then paid the debt as our substitute. That's the wonderful truth of the gospel of grace. He did that not so that we can continue living the life we used to live, but he did that in such a way that we might now no longer live in this enslavement and bondage to sin. He died to set us free from the mastery of having to follow the desires and passions that used to be under the control of our flesh, our fallen nature, which we did naturally. So when I became a Christian, my status changed before God. If you look what he says there in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, I used to belong to the prince of this world, as it says in Ephesians 2. I used to be following worldly ways of living. I used to indulge the desires of the flesh. But now, based on what he says here in this text, because Jesus bought me with his blood, because he paid for me and redeemed me, now I belong to Jesus Christ. When I converted, my flesh, my old sinful nature, was nailed to the cross. Jesus gave me the gift of a new life in him. And my flesh, my fallen human nature, my sinful passions, my sinful desires, which prompt me to live a selfish and self-indulgent life, they were crucified. When I was quickened and made alive in Christ, there was a significant, the old life, the old flesh is to be nailed to that cross. And the call to follow Jesus is a call to repudiate sin. It is a call to turn my back, to turn our backs on sin. And my old way of living died when I became a Christian. It does not mean that my flesh no more has a pull on my heart. I don't want you to hear me saying this morning that I don't have a struggle with sin or none of us has a struggle with sin because our flesh was nailed to the cross. I'm not saying that. You read Romans chapter 7 and you'll understand that even the Apostle Paul is dealing with this battle going on inside of him with his flesh. But, it, but what I am saying is my flesh is no longer a master in my life. I am free now to live according to a new pattern which the gospel has provided to me. Now, in light of that, I want us to take just a few moments and think more about the cross because we're looking now at verse 24 of Galatians 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I'm talking about this crucifixion idea related to our flesh. Think about a couple insights we gain on our attitude toward the flesh in light of our view of the cross. First of all, we could say that crucifixion is a brutal form of capital punishment. A brutal form of capital punishment. And that only the worst of criminals would have been crucified in that time. Of course, Jesus Christ is a huge exception to that. We understand that. But the reason we're trying to now think about the crucifixion as it pertains to the flesh is to remember what? That sin is destructive. Sin is corrosive. Sin is like a cancer that that just wreaks havoc in our lives. It is dangerous. And therefore, and here's our sub-point here, there is to be no pampering of our flesh, our sinful flesh as a Christian. There's to be a crucifixion about our flesh. And sin not only offends Christ, it also ruins our lives and it harms other people. It's not appropriate to assume that it's okay to be unconcerned about 
sins in our lives as a believer. We should somehow be careless about, ah, it's all of grace anyway. No, no, no. It is of grace, yes. But when we think of sin, we should be concerned about sin because why? Because we are to view our old flesh, the old way of living as being crucified. In the sense of it's nothing we want to treat as a friend. It's not something that we want to pamper. What does Jesus say about dealing with problem areas that lead us to to get into sins that are serious problems? He talks in the context, in this specific context of Matthew 5, he's talking about sexual lust, which is a huge problem, particularly in our culture today. I'm sure it was that day, but it's really a problem in our day. It's not gotten any better. And what does he say? He says, you don't make a truce with sin that might be even a private or or something that's a secretive kind of sin that may go on in your heart. You don't just make a truce with that and just let it go. He says, you take drastic actions to deal with it and don't let it go on and on and on and on. He says, he uses the comparison of cutting off your hand or gouging your eye out. You take drastic action. It would cause pain, yes, which is our next point, but you don't make a truce with it. It's to be nailed to the cross and treated like an enemy. Now, we also know that crucifixion is a synonymous. It's synonymous with pain. There's no such thing as a painless crucifixion. It's designed to inflict the most amount of pain for the longest period of time. Isn't that horrendous that they came up with that way of taking somebody's life? The most pain you could bring into a person's final moments for as long as they can uh, drag it out. It's horrendous. And I would just suggest to you, in light of that idea of pain, that crucifying our flesh is always going to be painful. Painful, painful, painful. There are things that we're going to have to give up that we used to enjoy as a Christian. There are friendships. There are relationships they are going to have to walk away from. There is a cost to following Jesus. It's a painful cost. But whatever hardship, whatever difficulty, whatever loss we incur in following Jesus, it will never outweigh the endless benefits and blessings that we gain in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Isn't that what Paul said? Paul said, listen, I had so many things in my life that I would brag about, that I enjoyed, that I relished. I treasured these things in my life. And he says, I at one point... I'm more than willing to give these things up. I'll treat them like something you throw away. They mean nothing to me. What? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ and the power of the resurrection at work in my heart and life. And so whatever painful thing you find to deal with in light of the the gospel as Christ by His grace is calling you into holiness and you say, I'm having a hard time letting go of this. uh, My fingers are hanging on to something. Remember, Whatever it is that you are valuing comes nowhere close to the pearl of great price that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You sell everything in order to gain that pearl of great price it says in the Gospels. Another point I wanted to just draw out here in terms of the crucifixion, helping us think about this idea of a life of repentance. The crucifixion as a means of capital punishment was always definitive. Definitive. What do you mean by that? Well, when a Roman soldier would hammer nails into a criminal's hands and a criminal's feet, 
I assure you, that Roman soldier never offered medical care to prevent the death that that crucifixion was intended to bring about. He never offered medical care to prevent that person from dying. The nailing of nails was intended to do what? This is going to put you to death. Eventually. And once a crucifixion began, everyone knew what would result. And since those of us who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh, it is a past tense verb here. It happened when we came to Christ and when we were regenerated. Those of us who belong to Christ, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We therefore are not to administer to our flesh any kind of first aid. We're not to give CPR to our flesh. We're not to go easy and negotiate with our flesh. In some way, try to prop up our flesh, our sinful nature. But I wonder if isn't it true for some of us, and we were honest, we say, well, you know, I must say, there are some parts of my life where I'm tempted to want to loosen the nails on my flesh. I want to break. I want to accommodate some areas of sin in my life. Aren't we all struggling with this on some level? Maybe you're struggling to say, well, I want to accommodate jealousy. I just can't help it. I feel so jealous over so-and-so. They have, I'm envious over what they have and what I don't have, and I obsess about it. I think about it all the time. I don't want to give that up. Others of us are unaware, perhaps, of the extent of our selfishness. We think of ourselves, and we're constantly obsessing over wanting to see our lives and our, our desires and our goals and our plans accomplished. We're all about ourselves, me, me, me. Others of us want to accommodate a rebellious spirit. We don't want to yield to authority. We defy authority on some level. Maybe it's not always overtly, but we do it by our attitude. We do it by our cynical comments and disrespectful uh, words that we show sometimes. Others of us, if we're honest, will have to say we, there are times and we continually may be struggling with accommodating sexual sin in our lives. We know full well that we need to give this part of, of our lives up. And we don't do it because why? Because we find that to be something we don't want to give up. Because the gospel has become secondary to us. And our flesh wants the mastery over us. Maybe for you it's dishonesty. Maybe you find yourself ensnared in all sorts of lies and half lies and things you've said over the years. You've dug yourself into a ditch and now you live with all kinds of deception and you're not being sincere and honest and you keep hanging on to it. You're unwilling to confess it. You're unwilling to deal with that part. And and here is God saying to you, listen, you nailed that flesh to the cross. You must not accommodate the flesh. You must not continually make room for that to go on and on and on in your life. For others of us, it's a hot temper. We just do not want to deal with that part of our, our fallen nature. You say, well, that's, I, I'm Irish. You know, people say, well, I have a certain background. I'm not saying anything about you Irish. I'm just, I've heard that. People just use their ethnic background. Well, that's just the way I was born. Think about it. Go back through and read Galatians 5. Read the verses that precede the works of the flesh. Those are not, have anything to do with ethnic background. That has to do with your heart. You say, oh yeah, well, I, you know, my foul language, I've, I've thought about over the years, but I've never been able to really give it up because that's the way I really feel sometimes. Who knows what it is? Maybe it's your bitter spirit. You can't let people, for, be, you can't forgive people, you hold it against them. Whatever it is, we are called 
to do battle against our flesh. We don't wave the white flag that says, you know, let's just have peace here and I'm not going to... No, we are against our enemy, the flesh. It has been crucified. And the gospel is a call to repent. Not just at the beginning of the Christian life, which it is, but that repentance is to continue on throughout our Christian life, day by day, moment by moment, so that the pattern that develops in our Christian life is a pattern of repentance. I'd like you to just take just a moment here before I move on to point number two. Would you take your notes or whatever you have to scribble on, just on your own? Just draw a little cross somewhere in this point number one area of your bulletin, on the notes there, wherever. And then draw a little little rectangle for like a sign onto that cross. And then say, which of the areas of my life If I'm really honest, and I want to be honest, that God convicts me that I am accommodating my flesh. I am letting this go on and on. There's some area of compromise in my life, and God is convicting me, and I know that he is zeroing in on this area of my life. I just want to write that down in my notes because I want to get back to that. I want to think about that. I want to pray about that. I want to see that I show repentance in this area of my life. Because unless you get specific with something going on in your heart and life, This is all just words that just, like water on duck's back. I don't know what that is for you. I know the Lord has made me aware of a couple of them that I have taken to heart, even in preparing this message. All right, I want to move now to our second point. That's the one side of the coin is repentance. It is my attitude toward my flesh. The gospel affects that in a very dramatic and powerful way. But the gospel also points me in a new direction. It's not all just negative. It is pointing me to the Spirit of God who directs His people toward Christ-likeness, which again has to do with a submissive attitude toward the Spirit of God. The more I think about the Gospel, the more I'm just amazed at how it helps to reveal us in our helplessness. (laughs) The Gospel affirms that we are weak. We are unable to resolve a lot of our own problems, our struggles to overcome sin. And it also provides us, and this is wonderful truth, because it not only shows us, diagnoses our problem, it says, I'm going to help you give you a remedy for the problem. I'm going to give you some help with the problem. Isn't that wonderful? And the help is the Holy Spirit. He is a source outside of ourselves who comes, takes up residence within us, and He empowers us to change. He is the one who's been granted to us to enable us to do battle against our sinful flesh. And so the Holy Spirit, what does He do? What is the work of the Holy Spirit, letter A? The gospel work of the Holy Spirit. Let me just review for you very quickly a couple points here. You know this, many of you know this. It starts with the Holy Spirit, first of all, convincing you at some point in your life, of your sin. I can remember the time when I was young. Boy, the Holy Spirit was doing such a mighty work on my heart. I was so convicted of sin. I was scared of God. I was afraid of dying because I knew if I ever stood before God, all my sins were all laid out there. And I was like, oh man, I'm in a mess. And my conscience was convicted. I felt the weight of my sin. I felt a, a need for covering. I was ashamed before God. And unless the Holy Spirit, that's the first thing the Holy Spirit's got to do his work in you if it's part of the gospel. He convicts us of sin. John chapter 16. And then we know that also in John chapter 3, Jesus taught the Spirit of God must perform his invisible work of regeneration. 
He must take our hearts and create within us a new life within us so that we come alive spiritually. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. And the Spirit must do that work. He must impart new life. And the evidence of that new life is a repentance of our sin. And it's an expression of faith in Christ as we come to Him and say, Lord Jesus, save me. I trust You. I surrender to You. I make You the one now that my life and my affections are toward You, Lord Jesus. It's not about me. It's about You. And there's a change in our loyalty and our values, our trust. We love Christ. John 16 says, verse 14, that the Spirit of God is going to glorify Jesus. So the Spirit of God in His work as we come to faith, it points us to Christ and we begin to find Christ to be our our greatest joy, our greatest delight. Then the Spirit of God will remind us of what Christ has done for us. We'll be reminded of Christ's exemplary life, His perfect obedience. We're reminded of Christ's costly substitutionary death on the cross for us. We're reminded of Christ's resurrection from the dead on our behalf and for our salvation. And the Spirit of God will confirm at some point along the way, very soon at at that point, that we are what? Galatians chapter 4, that we are children of God. We are sons of Christ. We are therefore been adopted into His family. Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. Then the Spirit will assure us of our new identity. We're dearly beloved children. We're fully accepted in the beloved. Even though we're sinners, even though we're struggling with sin, that's our new identity in Christ. And the Spirit of God is the one who convinces us of all those things. Now I want to just stop for a moment. I just want to say, don't assume that just because you attended a church when you were young, or just because you're here today in a church on a Sunday morning, first day of June, 2014, that just because you're here today, that you automatically means you're a Christian. Because what I've just reminded you of, the gospel work of the Spirit of God, those things must take place in your heart to make you a Christian. The Spirit of God has to do His work. There needs to be conviction of sin. There needs to be true repentance and faith in Christ because we have been made alive as a a new believer in Christ. And therefore, the assurance of our salvation flows out of that. All these things are part of what the Spirit does. Is there evidence that the Spirit of God lives within you? Do you see the evidence of the new birth? Do you have a desire to want to honor Christ and serve Christ and glorify Christ? Do you have a love for Christ? Do you have a strong appetite for the Word of God? Do you treasure the gospel of grace? Do you find amazement when you talk about grace, the grace of God? Does your love for Christ bear the fruit of a changed attitude towards sin, which results in ongoing repentance? Those are all the very important questions that try to help us understand. Is this really, are we people who, verse 24, belong to Christ? And therefore we are in step with the Spirit? Well, if the answer is yes... And I hope and pray it is. And if it isn't, my friend, today you can come to Christ. And you can know that new life in Christ. You can have a new identity in Christ. Indeed, as the Spirit of God reveals your sin, you pray. and Say, Lord Jesus, I want that new life. I want you to show me all my sin. I want to be a new creation. And he, my friends, will hear that prayer. If we say yes to these questions and we truly are seeing the work of Christ, of the Spirit of God in our hearts and lives... We're reminded again, it's because we are saved, not because of something we do. 
It's because of what God in Christ has done for us. And if we're saved, it makes no sense to live like you used to before you became a Christian. And so the gospel response to the leading of God's Spirit is this. Here we go. The gospel response in verse 25 is what? If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. That is, if we've been made alive by the Spirit of God, then we're to walk by the Spirit of God. Now, what does he mean by this word walk? Well, Paul uses a military term. How many of you have been in the military? Come on, let me see your hands. Okay, some of you. Not too many of you. I have not, so I'm, going to, not, I'm speaking about something I'm not familiar with personally, but I have heard stories from my father uh, who not only went to a military institute, uh, but he also served in the army uh, for a number of years. He told me that when you're in the military, you need to learn to march. <laughs> you need to learn to keep in step. And they will march you. They will teach you to follow in line. They will teach you to live under command. They will teach you to now put yourself into a formation and stay in that formation. And not just when you're standing there, but as you're moving forward in marching. And my dad used to talk about how they would just march and march and march. And you had to stay in that formation. And people were starting to faint and fall over because they were so, um, they sweated profusely and they were always lacking in water. My dad would pass his water from his canteen because he never seemed to drink a lot of water. And people would, they would just march you, march you, march you. Now, as you're marching in these rigorous exercises, one of the points of that is to teach you what? It's not about you as an individual. It's you working as a team in harmony with those around you. It's you learning to submit and coming under the subjection of those in authority over you. And so a soldier marching, his job is to do what? Keep in step. The only analogy I have was in a band when I was in, a, in middle school. Keeping in step in a band, I was horrible at it. That's one of the reasons I quit. I mean, I got so tired of letting people yell at me, get in step, muster. I'm like, I'm trying to play the song here. You know, give me a break. <clears throat> anyway, so as a, as, a, as a soldier, though, your main point at that point in these training exercises is to keep in step. Now, the soldier does not say, uh, Sergeant, how far are we going here? I mean, how long have we got to keep this march up? He's not going to say, where are we going, Sarge? When are we going to get there? His task is to keep in step, to keep in line. And I would suggest to you that what the Spirit of God wants us to do is to keep in line with the Spirit of God and His leadership. We're to follow His lead. That's the concept here. We're to make it our ongoing practice to follow and adopt the Spirit's guidelines, the Spirit's standards, the Spirit's uh, whatever He wants us to be doing. That's what we just sort of take and put in practice. It's not meant to be an occasional effort that we do, but the verb here, he means the word walk there, is ongoing. It's a habitual pattern. It's a, it's a way of life. And Christians are to live in accordance with who we are in Christ day in, day out, and we march in step with the Holy Spirit. And the gospel then helps us to do this by providing to us I call gospel disciplines. You say, oh, brother, discipline. That's the worst word you could use. Well, gospel disciplines are like learning to find the benefit of reading the Word of God. Is a gospel discipline. I'm thankful that I grew up in a situation where I was constantly encouraged, be sure to read the Word. Be sure to read the Word at the beginning of the day. 
you know, before you feed your face, feed your soul. I mean, that was driven into me early on in life. That's my pattern today. If I don't get some form of word that comes into my life and something to think about and ponder and to pray about, I feel like I don't even know what to do with myself. It's such an ingrained discipline, just like for you, many of you. We all have disciplines of what we do early in the morning. That, to me, has become one of them. And I reflect upon the word. That's a helpful way of what? Of listening to the Spirit. I'm now in tune with what the Spirit's trying to say because the Spirit is the one that wrote this book. There's also the benefit of devoting yourself to prayer. Communion with God is a spiritual discipline. You take quiet moments and you think. It doesn't have to be just quiet moments. You pray on the work. You pray in quick moments in your car. You can pray anytime and all the time. But that is a very helpful way of a, a discipline to help us stay in tune with the Spirit, asking for help. Regular worship with the people of God is a very helpful way of listening to the Spirit and helping the Spirit's lead and celebrating the Lord's Supper, which we're about to do. All these things can help us. As our minds are renewed, meditating on the Scriptures, as we open our hearts to God and talk to Him in prayer, as we gather with other saints, celebrating the Gospel and our fellowship with others of like precious faith, celebrating what Christ has done for us, we're more likely to sense the direction and leading of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I wish you could be a little more specific. Well, that's where we're going next week. Because verse 26 and 6 verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3, he gives a number of practical ways in which if my mind is being renewed, if the Spirit of God is showing me how he wants me to move in directions that are in keeping with where he goes, what does he say? Well, look at verse 26. I'm not going to explain it all. Don't become boastful, challenging one another, or envying one another. If someone's in sin, what do you do? Condemn them? Cut them off? Try to get away from them? Point out all their faults? No. You, you what? You seek to restore that person. And so the gospel is going to say what? It, it, it helps work in my life. I follow the leading of the Spirit. It motivates me to get into the lives of other people in a redemptive way, to want to minister to them, to not sit there and look down on them saying, oh, you know, what an idiot. You don't know anything. Sit there and condemn people and to sort of, uh, uh, you know, envy them, wanting what they have, or boastfully comparing yourself to somebody else, finding all the fault. No, I want to invest in them. I want to show the love of Christ to them. God saved me. I want to invest in them because I'm so thankful for the grace of Christ and the gospel. I want to do them good. I want to love them. I want to accept them. I want to restore them. Those are the things that we'll see as God helps us move in the direction of following, and marching in step with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, again, as we are humbled to read the kinds of characteristics of the flesh, all sorts of outbursts of anger and disputes, dissensions, factions, jealousy, strife, enmities, drunkenness, carousings, envyings. Lord, these things we know are the flesh at work. I pray that you might use your gospel, Lord, to change our hearts to the point at which we then begin to see a breaking away from some of these things, Lord. And the reason why is because they've been crucified. The flesh was crucified. Help us, Lord, to not accommodate our flesh. Even as we come to the Lord's table today, Lord, some of us need to really get serious to confess some sins to you. Some of us have been convicted about some areas where we've been accommodating and we've been sort of pampering sin. Lord, I pray that you would take these moments as we think of Christ dying on that cross, the price that he paid, Lord, help us, we pray, to be willing to take action in these areas of our lives, not because of a sense of 
for all the wrong motives, but all for the right reasons, Lord. And I pray, Father, you would also help us in our areas of learning to find the Spirit's leading and following Him no matter what, no matter where it is, no matter what, how difficult it may be. Lord, help us to be led by your Spirit as we think about Christ, who showed his love for us. Help us to be showing love to others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.